Um, you take your Bibles out and turn to Psalm 40. Tonight's psalm is longer than, uh, 17 verses longer than most of the other psalms that we've looked at so far. So we'll start reading right away. Psalms 40, the superscription says to the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the merry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burn offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is, is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. Father in heaven, we thank you for this psalm, and I just pray you'll open our eyes that we can see wonderful things in your law. May we leave here tonight knowing more of you and what it is as your disciples we are to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Tonight, I just wanted to start off with uh, talking about some problems in psalms. And in psalms, there's, I'm going to give you six problems, and... The first one is, you know, Psalms were written by David, half of them, spoken to God, and yet they are a word for us. So that can cause confusion and hard, hard thinking for some people. How do words spoken to God function as a word from God? So some people have a problem praying with the, praying the Psalms or praising the Psalms, and they don't think it applies to me, it's really David's, but they do, they are a word for us. The second problem is, what do you do with Psalms 88? And Psalms 137. Have you read those two Psalms? I mentioned Psalms 137 last week about the Beatitudes. And the, and, but Psalms 88 just ends with the guy's sick. Doesn't get healed. No praise. Nothing. It's a, it's a depressing Psalm. And Psalms 137 is an imprecatory Psalm. And it ends with asking God to, to bash the baby's heads on the rock of the enemies of Israel. So those are really hard Psalms. And I'll let Lance preach those someday. Number three... We don't understand Jewish poetry that has been translated into English. Uh, a lot of times you don't know how to preach it. And then how do we apply the text to us? And number four, we don't understand the figurative language 
the symbols, the metaphors which we have to interpret. Let me give you an example. Psalms 18.2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Seven metaphors in one verse. And it says rock twice, two different Hebrew words. So, you know, it can be confusing. I think we know, you know, Jesus is my rock and my fortress, but what does the horn of my salvation mean? What does my shield mean? Things like that. And then the fifth problem is we don't know the history behind most of the Psalms. Now, we do know that, including tonight's Psalm, 14 of the 73 that David wrote, we have some type of history tonight. And so we know know a little bit about, about this Psalm. And then number six How do we preach or understand the imprecatory psalms? So far, we have looked at a praise psalm. We've looked at a um, a lament psalm. We've looked at a messianic psalm. Um, We've looked at a royal psalm, an enthronement psalm, a confession of sin psalm. And tonight, we're going to touch a little bit about the imprecatory psalms. And there's no psalms like the imprecatory psalms that are greater difficulty for people when we read them. Many psalms, like Psalm 7... 35, 40, the one we're looking at tonight, 55, 58, 59, 69, 79, 109, 137 I mentioned, 139, 144, are called imprecatory. What does imprecatory mean? It means you're calling on God to punish the wicked and invoke God's wrath and judgment against the enemies. The author of the psalm will call down a curse, destruction, uh, judgment upon enemies, And it seems like it's violent language, like Psalm 137. And these psalms may seem like they're they're not in favor of the grace that we learn about in the New Testament of love. But we have to remember, and we'll talk about this at the end, the the hated expression of the psalmist here, he's concerned about these wicked enemies violating God's holy laws. They're not personal grievances. They're not vengeance. Uh, The psalmist takes his complaints to God in prayer, which is what we should do, he doesn't take vengeance. You know, Deuteronomy 32, 35, which is re-quoted in Romans 12, 19, says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So you don't take these psalm, precatory psalms and use them to attack our enemies. They didn't. And even the New Testament has curses. Galatians 1, 8, 9, Paul says, anybody that preaches a false gospel, we are cursed. And then 2 Peter 2, 12 talks about the false teachers being cursed. Okay. So what type of psalm is this? This psalm is all over the place. This is the hardest psalm I've probably studied in a long time because the commentators will argue. So Bill Barrick at Masters will say, this is a Thanksgiving praise psalm. And then Spurgeon, Ironside, and St. Augustine would say, it's a messianic psalm. And verses 1 to 5 are all praise. You see it on your sheet. Verses 6 to 8 are messianic. But it's not all messianic because verse 12 talks about the psalmist's sin. And we know Christ didn't have sin. So it's a little bit of praise, a little bit of messianic. And then verses 9 to 11, David's going to give wisdom. So it's a wisdom psalm too. And then, of course, most people would say it's an imprecatory psalm, but there's only a few verses that deal with imprecatory at the end. So it's a little bit of everything. So with the superscription I mentioned to the choir master, a psalm of David, and that would be that David wrote this psalm. He would hand it off to the sons of Korah or Asap, and there's a nice verse in 2 Chronicles 29.30 that says, Hezekiah the king and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asap the seer. 
and they sang praises with gladness and bowed down and worshiped. So remember, these 150 psalms were originally all sung as hymns. We have the words, but we don't have the music. The title of tonight's message is called The Horrible Pit. Where do we get that? Well, there's three words in my English Standard Version. It says in verse 2, the pit of destruction. If you have an NASB, it also should say the pit of destruction. If you have an NIV, it says slimy pit. But you got to love the King James and the New King James. The horrible pit. That's just the graphic language. So let's talk a little bit about that. This story here, uh, we have, it starts off with a past crisis of David who found himself in a horrible pit, bogged down in the mud. He cried out to the Lord, and God rescued him and set his feet upon a rock, gave him a place to stand, and put a new song in his heart. That's verses 1 to 5. But then you get to verses 12 to 17. There's a new crisis, and that's why David is crying out the imprecatory prayer there. David was a man after God's heart. We do not know the circumstances of, this, of, of when this occurred, um, but we have at least 14 psalms that in the superscription tell us of the trouble that David encountered, but here it's unknown. They may have been, in the Bible, when you look, think about the horrible pit, there are many men who are put in a pit, right? Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 38, he was faithfully preaching the word of God to the people of Judah, warning them of the coming judgment of sin, and the princes of Judah call him a traitor. They got permission from King Zedekiah, and they put him in a cistern in a pit. Joseph, his brothers were jealous of him because he was the father's favorite and his dreams, so they threw him into a pit, Genesis 37, 22. Jonah, Jonah was in a pit. We say Jonah was in the belly of a whale, but Jonah 2, verse 6 says, you brought my life up from the pit. So the pit of destruction is a metaphor for sickness, for near death, Perhaps enemies can attack you. Hezekiah, another one, he got very sick and he was going to die. Remember? God says, get your house in order, you're going to die. He cries out to God. God sends Isaiah to him and says, you have 15 more years of life. And then in Isaiah 38, 17, Hezekiah says, behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. So possibly sickness also for David in Psalms 40. The definition of a pit, it could be a sickness, it could be near death, abandonment, imprisonment. It could be any calamity or trouble. Whatever enslaves a man and makes him miserable and hard to escape. It will be a place of despair, a place of ruin, or a place of punishment. In the horrible pit, there's great distress and misery. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce says, Muddy times may be the experience of even the greatest saints, and slimy pits the lot for even kings and preachers. Some of you today may be in the horrible pit. Some of our young people may end up falling into the horrible pit someday if they don't stay close to God. There are many pits and snares along the way. Like what somebody said, God promises us a safe landing, but not a calm passage. So some of you out there are in a pit right now. Now, we talked about this last week. There's a pit of sin, right? Some people are caught in the mud of sin, and sin is a powerful force. And if you don't confess it, like we learned from Psalm 32, the heavy hand of God will be upon you. We talked about David last week. He realized this in his life. The consequences of David's sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah remain with him for the rest of his life. God forgave him, but you know the rest of the story in David's life. 
David and Bathsheba's baby died. His daughter was raped by one son. Amnon was later killed by Absalom. Absalom was killed in the rebellion. And finally, Adonai was executed by Solomon. That's four children who died after that sin. Samson was another person who dug a pit for himself. Youthful pleasures, selfish desires, lust. How did it end? He was blinded. He was in chains doing the work of an animal, which was a result of his sin. So there's a pit of sin. There's also a pit of addiction. Could be drugs, could be alcoholism, could be pornography. I read last week that drug overdose is at an all-time high in the United States. I don't know if that's because of our society or just the drugs are flowing freely across the border, but drug overdoses are at an all-time high in the history of the United States. The pit of alcoholism. Think of the, the wife and the kids that have to live in a house where there's an alcoholic father. That would be a pit of addiction. And pornography is a pit that will destroy marriages, that will destroy many men today. There's also a pit of bad habits. Everywhere you go now, there's signs, help wanted, help wanted. We've got a lot of people being lazy that don't want to work. Why work when the government's paying you not to? We have people that are procrastinating. People are blaming uh, things. So, so many job listings. So there's a pit of bad habits out there. There's a pit of broken relationships, broken homes, dysfunctional families out there. And then a pit of family problems. David, he had a lot of family problems, and he refused to deal with them, which resulted in more problems. There's also the pit of loneliness. You know, maybe this psalm was written when Saul was chasing David for 13 years, and he was lonely. I don't know. There's a pit of hopelessness. You know, suicides are up. Attempted suicides are up. And some of this we see with our post-COVID uh, and, and a consequent of men and women living apart from our Lord Jesus Christ. Is this where you are today, or is this where someone you know is in a pit? Well, I love what Corey Ten Boom said. I love to quote her, this great woman. You know, I mentioned she spent years in the Ravensbrück concentration camp under the Nazis and Hitler, and yet she got out and she was able to even forgive the guards. She said this, remember this, there is no pit so deep that God's love is still, is not deeper still. Let me say it again. There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Corey Ten Boom said that. Tonight's outline, I hope you have it. We have David's praise, number one, verse one to five. That's the Thanksgiving part. David's pledge, verses six to eight. That's the Messianic part. Number three, David's proclamation. That's the wisdom part, verses nine to 11. And then we end with David's prayer in verses 12 to 17. So let's get into it. Number one, David's praise. David is gonna help David is going to praise God for the help in the past. You know, we see this often in the Psalms. So many of the Psalms, the writer is telling us of when God rescued them or saved them from some trial or disaster. And David is so thankful. We don't know the situation, but David is so thankful that he's going to list seven things that God did for him. Number one, he says in verse one, God inclined to me. You got to love that, don't you? He says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me. You know, the psalmists always often speak of a necessity to wait when we pray. Psalms 37, 7, Psalms 37, 34, Psalms 38, 15, Psalms 39, 7, and I think most of you know Psalms 27, 14 says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. You know, we don't like waiting for the Lord, though, do we? Uh, last night we had our prayer, and I asked the prayer team to pray for Pastor Cheat Coco in uh, Myanmar because I heard yesterday that he was an oxygen, and he's one of my friends, and 
the way it looked like he was going to die last night. And what happens in Myanmar is you run out of oxygen and you can't get replaced it. But I got an email this morning that he's off the oxygen and he's doing much better. So God answered that prayer. Praise God. But sometimes we have to wait, right? We have to wait. We have to wait patiently. And when the answers to our prayers don't come quickly, we just have to submit to God, understanding his sovereignty by waiting patiently for him to answer. It says he inclined to me. That literally means God reached down or he bent down. He turned to me. And, you know, we may have to be patient, but it's wonderful to know that God loves his children and he'll incline to them. Number two, God heard my cry. David sought the Lord in prayer and the Lord heard his cry. Someone has said, one commentator said, from the deepest depth on earth, a whisper of true prayer will reach the throne of grace. Psalms 50:15 says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. This, this verse here, uh, you know, God heard his cry, reminds us that God does hear the prayers of the righteous. But you do got to remember, Isaiah 59:2, God does not hear the prayers of the wicked. Number three, God lifted me up. Here's where we get our title. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, or out of the horrible pit, out of the miry bog. The metaphors here are, are the pit of destruction and miry bog are metaphors, and I already mentioned that could be death, could be sickness, could be an enemy attacking. We don't know, but there's darkness in the horrible pit, and David, God took David out of this horrible pit. There's a Chinese parable that describes a man fell into a deep pit. He lay there groaning and helpless. Presently, Confucius came by, the great Chinese philosopher passed by, and seeing the man said to him, How foolish of you to fall in there. I am truly sorry for you. Let me give you some advice. If you ever get out of this pit, don't fall in again. Later, a Buddhist priest passed by and said, Poor fellow creature, if you can but struggle halfway out, I could reach you and lift you out. But next, the Lord Jesus passed that way, and hearing the man's groans, he had compassion on him and said, I loved you and gave myself for your salvation. And he stooped right down and lifted the man up, saying, See, I have saved you. Go and sin no more. What a wonderful Savior Jesus is. Number four, God made me safe, and he set my feet upon the rock. God is able to take souls. God is able to take anybody in the pit from darkness into light, from deep despair into exalted hope. Jesus Christ is the rock on which we stand. We sing that wonderful song, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And the chorus says, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. I got to preach in the Spanish service on Sunday, and I started off with Matthew uh, 7, verses 24 to 27. We were talking about the solid foundation, and you know the story, right? Two men, a wise man and a foolish man, right? The wise man built his house on the rock. The rains came, the winds blew, and the floodwaters came, but that house stood because it was built on the rock. And the foolish man built his house on the sand, and the same rains, the same wind, the same floodwaters came, and that house fell with a crash. There's only one rock to build our house upon, and that's Jesus Christ. Trusting in anything else will lead to disappointment. Number five, God gave, God gave me strength. He says, making my steps secure. The New King James says, establish my goings. 
NIV says, gave me a firm place to stand. There's not only deliverance from the pit, but strength and power to stand upon the rock. God enables us to stand and walk on solid ground. There are many promises from God. Isaiah 41.10 is one of my favorite. It says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Number six, God made me sing. It says, verse three, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. I like what A.P. Gibbs said. He says, out of the mire into the choir. David is rejoicing now. There's joy after deliverance that breaks out in a song. In the horrible pit, there's no singing, only sorrow and despair. But on the solid rock, there's singing. Remember when the children of Israel walked through, not a pit, but they walked through the dry land, the Red Sea, and when they crossed over and the Egyptian army was destroyed, in Exodus 15:2, they break out in song, right? The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. So in the Psalms and in the history of the Israelites, there are many hymns, many songs of praises after deliverance. Psalms 5.11 says, But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. There are over 70 occurrences of singing in the Psalms. This is just one of them. And my hope for you is that if you will read a psalm a day, if you will grow in your psalms, It'll help your praise life in singing. It'll help your prayer life. Let's move on to number seven. God made me a witness. So David got out of the the horrible pit. He's on the rock. And three things are going to happen there. He's going to trust in the Lord. Because he trusts in the Lord, he's going to be blessed by the Lord. And because he's going to be blessed by the Lord, he's going to proclaim God's wonderful deeds. So he trusts in the Lord. He says, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. That's why David writes these Psalms, to teach the children of Israel not to make the mistakes he made, like we looked at in Psalms 32. So after being rescued out of the horrible pit, here David is going to be a witness, and he's going to tell people they need to trust the Lord like he did. So David trusted the Lord, and in verse 4, he got blessed by the Lord. He says, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. If you trust the Lord, the principle is you will be blessed by the Lord. Last week, we saw the 25 Beatitudes of the Psalms. I hope some of you took those home and looked at them. This is number seven. This is the seventh Beatitude in the Psalms. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. If you want to be blessed, you have to put your trust in the Lord. I trust you all know Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and you'll make your path straight. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is two verses we all should know. The opposite in this verse 4, someone who doesn't trust in the Lord trusts in their own prideful arrogance, and what happens is they go after a lie, and they will end up in a pit. So after he trusts the Lord in verse 3, he's blessed by the Lord in verse 4. Verse 5, he's going to proclaim the wondrous deeds. He says, you have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. The Hebrew word here, pala, is something that is wonderful, miraculous, astonishing. Solomon would use this in the psalm he wrote, Psalm 72, verse 18. Solomon wrote, praise be to the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone does marvelous deeds, pala. This is supernatural work, usually when God divinely rescues his people. Because David trusted in the Lord, he was blessed. 
He looks back at his life praising God for all he did. And God's wondrous deeds are so many, David says, you can't tell them. You know, isn't it true, uh, I was talking to a man a couple weeks ago, he was addicted to drugs for many years, and he said that he's been sober for 13 years, coming to Christ in church. Now he's a drug counselor, telling people not to do what he did. But who makes some of the best witnesses for Jesus Christ? The former alcoholics, the former drug addicts, those maybe who are in prison. They, they were in the pit, and they come out, and God saves them, and they're changed. The old is gone, the new has come. Let's move on to point two, David's pledge. David's pledge. And this would be the messianic part. Now, this is where commentators are all over the place, and they could literally drive you crazy here, because Spurgeon, Ironside, and St. Augustine would say, this is a messianic psalm, and they would make every verse about Christ, and I mentioned verse 12 mentions sin, so I don't think so. So there are passages in the Bible, like Ezekiel 28, it talks about Satan, right? Ezekiel 28 talks about Satan, but it also talks about the sin of Tyre. So the verses apply to the king of Tyre, and they apply to Satan. So this is the same. I believe it's for both. So I put David's perspective and Christ's perspective. He says there, in sacrifice and offerings you have not delighted, but you've given me an open ear. Burn offering and sin offerings you've not required. He says you've not delighted, you have not required in sacrifices or burnt offerings. Now David is not against the sacrifices. He would always sacrifice before going off into battle. But he's talking about the meaningless sacrifices that he saw King Saul do. Remember what Saul did in 1 Samuel 15, 22? Uh, remember that verse, to obey is better than sacrifice? God does not delight in worthless sacrifices, is what David is saying. What does God delight in? Verse 6 says, you've given me an open ear. Now, some commentators would talk about this is where they took the slave, and if the slave would stay with his master, they would take an owl and they'd through the ear, but... This says ear, and that in there it's plural, so I don't think so. I think this means he's, I delight, like verse 8 says, David says, I delight to do your will, O Lord. David is going to be obedient. He's not going to give worthless sacrifice. He's going to obey. Verse 7 says, then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of your book that's written of me. So commentators will argue about this verse. Some commentators feel that David may be referring to when a king was inaugurated, when a king was enthroned, the priest would write the book of law, give him a scroll, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The priest would write that, and he would give the king a copy. So maybe that's what they're talking about here. So if that's what it is, David's saying he delights to do the law of the Lord. But turn with me to Hebrews 10. Lance was just in here a few months ago, and you'll see what the writer of Hebrews says about these three verses. Hebrews 10 Verses 5 to 7 are quoted, not from the Hebrew text, but from the, the Greek Septuagint and slightly different. But Hebrews 10, verses 5 to 7, quote Psalms 40, verses 6 to 8. So if you see in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5 says, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, he said, Psalms 40, verses 6 to 8. Sacrifices and offerings you not desired. Now, here's a change, though. Notice, in the, in the Old Testament Hebrew, it says, you have given me an ear, right? You have given me an open ear. But you notice the change here? But a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. So this is definitely Jesus Christ speaking. So you have here Jesus the Son speaking to God the Father, submitting to the Father's will. 
Jesus would do the Father's will. He would come to earth. He would die as a final perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God for the sins of the world. And, and he says, you've given me an open ears changed to a body that you prepared for me. So I, I really believe that, that Psalms 46 to 8 are a messianic prophecy, and then the writer of Hebrews agrees with that. It might speak of David, but I think it's more, more speaking of Christ. Let's move on to step three. This is a long psalm, and I know I'm going fast. So, uh, point three says David's proclamation. So once you're out of the horrible pit, once you're standing on the rock, once you're singing the new song, once you're a witness for Jesus Christ, you need to be established in Jesus Christ, right? And David's going to give six facts that you need to know about God. So uh, out of the horrible pit, you need to stay away, stay away from the pit, and you need to stay close to Jesus. So the first thing is you need to know about God's righteousness, verses 9 to the first part of 10, 11. Now this is where... I have the ESV Bible, and the New King James and the NSB probably do a better translation, because in the ESV it says, I have told the glad news of your deliverance. Verse 10 says, I have not hidden your deliverance, but the New King James and the NSB translate that word deliverance to righteousness, God's righteousness, and I think that's probably a better translation. You know, the Bible speaks of man being corrupt and lacking in righteousness. Without Jesus, we do not have righteousness. Romans 3.10 says, there is no one righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You cannot get into heaven without the righteousness of Christ. But only through the atoning work of Jesus Christ can a man have that righteousness. And, uh, you know, my favorite verse in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians 5.21, which says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we could have the righteousness of God. So you had a transfusion on the cross. God gave that thief his righteousness, and he took that thief's sin and, and upon himself and died for that thief's sin. And when you accept Jesus Christ, the same transfusion happens. So this word in 2 Corinthians 5.21, um, it doesn't say imputed, but we're talking about the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. Uh, Romans 4.3 says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was imputed to him as righteousness. So when you come to Jesus Christ, when you repent of your sins and you believe in Jesus Christ, you are imputed the righteousness of Christ. God looks at you through the lens of Jesus Christ and says, not guilty, you're righteous. But not only do you have imputed righteousness, you have imparted righteousness as we obey God's word, as we grow strong in God's word, as we sin less, the Holy Spirit changes our life and we become more and more transformed into an increasing likeness of Jesus Christ. So we have imputed righteousness, we have imparted righteousness. We do not have, however, infused righteousness. Drew mentioned about the Catholic Church on Sunday. So if you grew up in the Catholic Church, you were taught infused righteousness or good works, or the sacraments of the church will accumulate righteousness. That is unscriptural. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that you need the imputed righteousness of perfect Jesus Christ, and no works you can do can get you into heaven. Let's move on to number two, God's faithfulness. He says in the, first, this, the middle part of 10b, I have spoken of your faithfulness. The faithfulness of God and his word is a constant theme in the Bible. You can trust God. J.I. Packard, in his book, Knowing God, if you're a student of the Bible and you don't have that book, you must have it. 
And J.I. Packard lists six areas where we can trust God. Number one, God does not change. God does not change, so you can trust his faithfulness. Number two, God's character does not change. You can trust him. Number three, God's truth does not change. This book does not change. God's way, number four, does not change. Number five, God's purposes do not change. And number six, God's son does not change. God is faithful. You know, the sun coming up every morning as it has for thousands upon thousands of a year is an example of God's faithfulness. It comes up in the morning, it goes down in the evening, and it reminds us of God's faithfulness. Let's move on to number three, God's salvation. I've mentioned this in many of the Psalms we've taught, that the word salvation in the Old Testament literally means deliverance. Deliverance from some calamity, deliverance from sin, deliverance from some sickness. But we know in the New Testament, deliverance, uh, salvation comes through Christ, and deliverance is from sin's penalty. Deliverance comes from sin's power, and someday, when we're glorified in heaven, deliverance from sin's presence altogether. Let's move on to number four. The fourth wisdom that David wants to know is God's loving kindness. He says in part of 10C, I know I'm jumping around these verses, in part 11B, I have not concealed your steadfast love. And in 11B, he just says your steadfast love. This is an Old Testament word, steadfast love. We don't use it in the New Testament because in the New Testament, it's better translated grace. But it's used, I mentioned last week, I think 123 times in the Old Testament and all 26 verses of Psalm 136. Let's move on to God's mercy. As, you, as in verse 11 says, as for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. You know, mercy is God withholding punishment we do deserve. Out of the pit and living for Christ, the old is gone, the new has come. So when you look at verse 12, David says, My iniquities have overtaken me. I cannot see. They're more than head. So, so apparently David is going to, when we get to the point four, David's going to fall into a new calamity that perhaps he caused. Maybe it's the census. I don't know that he did. But David's sins, he says in verse 11, don't restrain your mercy for him. God's mercy is, is, is incredible. And lastly, God's truth. He says in 10, verse 10 and also 11, and your faithfulness. My ESV says faithfulness, but the NASB and New King James say truth, truth, truth. He says, and your truth from the great congregation. I'm going to tell them about your truth. And your faithfulness or your truth will ever preserve me. Truth is a personal quality or one of the attributes of God. Psalms 119, three verses in a row talk about Psalms 119, 142 says, Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Psalms 119, verse 151, But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Psalms 119, verse 160, The sum of your word is truth. And then the New Testament, John 1, 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then I hope you all know John fourteen six. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth. God is truth. The Spirit is truth. Jesus Christ is truth. And the words of our Bible are the only truth we can go by. So David wants uh, the people to know these six statements about God. Let's now get into point four, David's prayer. And this is the imprecatory part. 
And the imprecatory part here is, is the language is not as strong as some imprecatory prayers where the author asks to cr- you know, crash skulls in and you know, do all kinds of things. But we know here in, uh, in verses 12 to 17, we have four parts here. And the first part is protect me. In verses 1 to 5, David was in a horrible pit. He called upon the Lord and the Lord delivered him. But now here in verse 12, he's in a present crisis. He's in another pit. Something's arisen and he needs help again. So he's going to cry out an imprecatory prayer to God in these last six verses. Again, we don't know the situation, but he's going to cry out to God for deliverance. And I just mentioned, he says in verse 12, the evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails me. So he, is, he can't see. He's sick, probably, or his sin has caused this sickness. So it appears to be David's own making. Uh, he's admitting his iniquities. Now, it's possible that he's admitting the iniquities of the nation of Israel, but it's more likely it's his sin. He's overwhelmed by these sins, and they're causing suffering. Now, turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 70. Psalm 70, and you're going to see something interesting. Psalm 70 is a short psalm, which is exactly five verses, and they are almost exactly like Psalm 40, verses 13 to 17. In fact, I mentioned commentators go crazy in this psalm. Some commentators think Psalms 40, verses 1 to 12 was one psalm. And then verse 13 to 17 was another psalm. And so they take, say that the, the psalmist took Psalm 70 and added it to Psalm 40 to make it. I don't, I don't know if I believe that. But if you look at Psalm 70, it's almost exactly like Psalms 40, verses 13 to 17. Now, I won't read those five verses, but just tell you what the difference is. In Psalms 40, verses 13 to 17, the name of God is Yahweh. In Psalm 70, verses 1 to 5, the name of God is Elohim. In our, your English Bible, it just says God, 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 right? So it does say in verse 1, Yahweh once, but most of the other times it says, says Elohim. So the, you're actually getting two Psalms tonight, Psalms 40 and Psalms 70. But he says, he says there, protect me, God, there. And then number two, he says, save me, save me, verse 13. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. So he starts here the precatory prayer. He starts with the urgency. He's crying out, seeking deliverance from the only source of help, Yahweh. Now, verses 13 are the imprecatory prayer as, as David's calling out help. And the psalmist here is praying for his enemies to fall in shame in accordance to the principles of justice and with the promise of God to curse those who curse his own. You know Genesis 12, right? God's going to curse those who would curse Israel. So um, he's, he, we'll get into that. So he's just crying out, save me, and hurry up, God, hurry up, deliver me. So number three, he says, defend me. And he says, first off, in verses 14 and 15, defend me from those who seek my life. Now here's where you can see an imprecatory prayer in the Psalms. Uh, when it says, let, 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 you see how it says, let those be put to shame, let those be turned back, verse 15, let those be appalled. And then I think in the NASB, verse 16 says, let all who seek you. So when you see a lot of those let, 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 that's probably a psalmist calling out imprecatory prayers. So next time you go through the Psalms and you get a difficult Psalm and you're wondering what it's about and you see that let God kill them, let God destroy them, let God bash them. 
you're probably reading an imprecatory psalm, okay? So, so whatever the situation here is, uh, David's enemies want to kill him. He says that they want to snatch my life away. So the heart here, I mentioned, is let. David's imprecatory prayer is that these people who want to kill him be turned back, uh, be defeated, be dishonored. These, these enemies are saying, aha, aha, which means we got you. We're going to get you. We have more in our army than you have, and we're going to get you. They're boasting. Psalms 35, 21 says, they open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. So David says, defend me from those who seek my life. And then he says in verse 16, with all those who seek your love. He says, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. In verses 14 and 15, the enemies taunt Dave with this proud taunt. Aha, aha. But David prays that when salvation comes, the congregation, the children of Israel, this would be the tabernacle at this time, they would, scream, they would cry out, they would sing out, great is the Lord. And finally, we come to verse 17. It's a bit interesting verse it ends. As for me, I am poor and needy. This is the king of Israel. He's not really poor and needy, is he? He's rich. But here he humbles himself. He submits to himself. And he says, the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. David humbles himself before the almighty God of the universe. But he's so happy, so joyful, so at peace because God thinks of him. God cares for him just like he does all of his children. God is his help. God is his deliverance. He closes his prayer, and we've talked about this in Psalm 16, in Psalm 3, where the psalmist would just say, God, hurry up. God, help me. You know, you don't need long prayers, right? Short prayers are, are better. So I, I know I've rushed through these first 17 verses, but I want to end with the application tonight because I've talked about this is, can I, can you call upon imprecatory prayers upon <laughs> President Biden and Kamala Harris? <laughs> and the answer is yes, but you need to be careful. <laughs> Um, I'm going to give you seven principles, okay? Seven principles. First off, pray your anger to and through God. Uh, I wasn't really much involved in the politics because living in Myanmar until two years ago, but the election came, and I, I, still can't, I still can't figure out how that vice president got in, okay? She wasn't popular uh, then. She's not popular now. I don't know how she got. So I was like kind of going crazy over her and I was getting angry to the point I had to confess my sins about it. So we got to be careful about hating these people. I've had a couple people call me and say, how do you pray? How do you pray for Biden? How do you pray for them? You know, Biden, I think is, it's cruel having a, having a mother who had Alzheimer's, seeing a onstage dementia or first stage. I think it's cruel that what they're doing to him, but um, he's not all there. But we can't hate and uh, we can't take our angers out on them. Now, in the imprecatory psalm, God invites us to have anger, but not to sin, okay? Psalms 4, 4 says, in anger don't sin, and that's requoted in Ephesians 4, 26. So I had to confess my sins and kind of just given up. I, I don't know how she got in there. But, you know, every day we see something new. Not a day passes where they're teaching something in kindergarten or preschool that our kids should not have any, anything teaching, and, and it just gets your anger to boil, doesn't it? 
Uh, they're, they're trying to make uh, churches and schools and institutions hire LBGTQ or, or teach things that we don't want to teach. But remember, don't let the sin go down while you're angry. Don't give the devil a foothold. Express your anger to God and through God. God is a righteous God, and you can ask God to repay the evil for what they're doing. So imprecatory psalms can harness your anger and help express it to God. You know, I'm angry at the generals in Myanmar. They are horrible. They are wicked. And I won't go into their atrocities, but I don't even know how to pray except God, deal with them. God, deal with them. Judge them. Kill them. You know, it's, but we really shouldn't pray for them to be killed. That's point number two. Pray for their salvation. So number one, pray your anger to and through God. Number two, pray for their salvation. You are commanded as a Christian to pray for our leaders. So we are commanded to pray for uh, President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris. I think I I prayed almost every day for eight years for Obama. Because 1 Timothy 2 says, you know, don't pray for their damnation. Don't pray for their death. God is the author of life. He's determined the exact number of days. We pray for their salvation. You know, if, if they are enemies of God... Uh, they're enemies of the cause of God. Don't make them your personal enemies. Don't make it an opportunity for revenge. So remember, always remember, and this is what you got to remember about Kamala Harris or Biden or anybody there. They're under the wrath of God. You are under the grace of God. Okay? Number three, pray for the vengeance of God. The prayer that you pray is the execution of God's righteousness in the judgment of their sin. Okay, you know, I mentioned that driving in Yangon and you drive by the U.S. Embassy and they have the pride flag there. And they're not only attempting, the United States is not only attempting to do abortions here and make you pay for them. They're, they're, they're attempting to spread that to the world and the LBGTQ. And that's a, a devout Buddhist country. So it's not just the United States. Our government is spending your tax money and doing things, but it's all over the world. But you can pray that God would execute his righteous judgment in their sin and ask God to execute righteousness upon his enemies, whomever they are. Number four, pray for the dictators of the world. In North Korea, Kim Jong-un, pray for him. In Myanmar, pray for the generals. In China, Xi Jinping, pray that if they don't repent, that God would remove them and put someone else in their place. Number four, or that's number four. Number five, Pray for God to thwart them. Does anybody know the thwart song here? It's from uh, Proverbs 10.3. Did you ever sing the thwart song in Sunday school? I, I, this church came, this uh, church up north came to Myanmar, and they, they came to our school, and they did the thwart song. It's a great song, and it just says, God thwarts the cravings of the wicked. And that's what God can do, and that's what we can pray. You know, we can pray that God would thwart the agenda of who's ever behind Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Now, every once in a while, it seems we get a victory in the Supreme Court, and the next day we get a defeat. But pray that God will thwart their agenda, that God will thwart their wickedness, um, that maybe there'll be an, uh, an honest judge, or maybe there'll be some Christians in positions of power. So pray that God can thwart them. Now, number six, pray knowing God uses wickedness in his plans, right? We know that. So when we pray, and we've talked about this here before, the wickedness we see growing, and I just watched a five-minute video 
Um, I don't think it's from Grace to You, but it's a five-minute video on YouTube. You can Google it. John MacArthur is preaching, and he says, it's going to get worse. It's just a five-minute video, and he talks about things are going to get worse. They are not going to get better. So when we see this wickedness, we got to remember what the Bible says. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 4 says, understand this. In the last days will come times of difficulty. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's what we're seeing in the United States today. So God knows all about the wickedness, and he is using it for his end times. Another great verse is Proverbs 16.4. says that the Lord has made everything for his purpose, even the wicked for the day of disaster. So I know that the end is near. I know that Jesus is coming soon because wickedness is increasing. Uh, you know, we've taken the gospel all around the world. The church is weak because of false teaching. I believe Jesus is coming back. So the wickedness we see is part of God's plan, and he's going to use that. And then number seven, pray for Christ's return. This is the easiest one and the one I want you to remember today. Now, we always talk about praying for the return of Christ, right? Revelation twenty two twenty says, He who testifies to these things says, Amen, come Lord Jesus. We always pray for the return of Jesus Christ, right? But what's our motive in praying for the return of Jesus Christ? I want to get out of here. I want my church to get out of here. I want my family to get out of here. But think about this. When you pray for the return of Jesus Christ, you are praying an imprecatory prayer. You are. Because think about it. What happens when the church is gone? The Holy Spirit, the, the hand of the Holy Spirit is gone. What's coming? Judgment. Now, they may have three and a half years of peace. The Antichrist will come in the tribulation. There may be three and a half years of peace. But then the worst judgment in the history of the world is coming. So when you pray for the return of Jesus Christ, I know we have selfish motives. We want to go home to be with Jesus. That's okay. But you're also praying an imprecatory prayer. So you can pray these prayers to people around the world. Remember to put your anger to God through God. Pray for their salvation. Pray for the vengeance of God. Uh, Pray for the dictators around the world to be replaced. Uh, Pray that God will thwart them or people will thwart some of their evil plans. Pray knowing that God is going to use this wickedness in his plan of sovereignty. And pray for the return of Jesus Christ. So I know imprecatory prayer, imprecatory prayers are hard, and I know imprecatory psalms are hard. Um, they're not the most exciting psalms, but as you read through the psalms, you're going to see them, and I hope that this will help you to understand them, help you to grow in them. Uh, next week, we're going to look at another one of David, Psalm 52.